Luke 12.35 Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast, so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, My master will be a long time in coming and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect and at an hour when he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. Lord Jesus, your words are like water flowing over us and washing us clean. Your words are like oil anointing us and preparing us for ministry. Your words, Lord Jesus, are like a, a salve, that, a healing balm that brings peace and strength to our lives and to our hearts. Sometimes, Lord Jesus, Your Word is like a cattle prod, goading us on, prodding us, directing us, encouraging us, challenging us. And we find these words to be words of challenge, words of encouragement. Words that prod. And I ask, Lord Jesus, this morning that you would do just that. In my life first, Lord, I pray that you would prod me. And for each of us as a fellowship, that you would lead us forward and direct our lives, that our decisions, each little decision throughout the day, would be made in accordance with your will, with a desire of your kingdom. And that we would not be entrapped by the things of this world, knowing that your coming is very soon. Lord, enlighten us, because there is much in these words, and we want to understand, but more than understand, we want revelation to live our lives according to your will. So we ask your Holy Spirit to guide and teach and lead now in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a passage of Scripture familiar, perhaps to you. It's familiar if you've been in 
in the bridge for any amount of time in this fellowship. We've gone through Matthew 24, similar teaching. We've gone through Mark 13, similar teaching. And here we are in Luke 12 and Luke 19, 20, 21. When we get further into the chapter there will, or into the book, there will be more as well. But I came to this passage and at first it was so familiar to me. And be careful, familiar chapters are some of the most dangerous in Scripture. So familiar to me, I had to read it over several times to see things that I had not seen before and to understand some things I did not understand before. It's all about the coming of Jesus, absolutely. But you may be surprised to learn some things this morning. The Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8 said, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. In the future. That's interesting, coming from the Apostle Paul. That he would say, in the future, unusual talk from a guy who so fervently believed and taught the imminent return of Jesus. To read that verse almost sounds as though Paul has caved into the notion that Jesus might not come in his lifetime. That it might be a while. That it could be somewhere down the road that Jesus ultimately comes and yet try to square that with the rest of Paul's teaching like Romans 13 verse 11. It is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7. Not lacking in any gift, He wants us to be awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we are to live, Paul says. That's how He lived. With this fervent expectation of the imminent, the immediate, the very soon coming of Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 29. But this I say, brethren, that the time has been shortened. So that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. Guys, don't get any wrong ideas. And those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. The time has been shortened. Live your life knowing that any moment, we might add, Jesus could be here. That was 2,000 years ago. It's been a long time since Paul spoke those words. And in Paul's last letter, 2 Timothy is Paul's swan song. His final letter, some have called it his last will and testament, as he writes to Timothy on the eve or, or on the verge of what he knows is his death. And he writes, in the future, there is laid up for me. In the future, There is a crown of righteousness in the future. It just seems a long way off. It seems quite distant. Back in 1985, flying cars and hoverboards seemed way off. And in the distance, of course, according to the Back to the Future trilogy, it's supposed to happen in 2015, so keep your eyes open. (laughs) One thing can be said about Paul. In every and all circumstances... He dressed in readiness. He dressed in readiness. And we'll try to make some sense in a few minutes about this future statement that he makes. But he dressed in readiness. And he called others to do the same. Always live your life ready. Don't let a day go by where you are not ready that day for the coming of Jesus. For Him to return. 
And the fulfillment of all the unfulfilled Hebrew prophecies of the return of the King in glory. Why is the Bible so fervent on the imminent return of Jesus, this book that was written, completed 2,000 years ago? Why is that? And I think it's because Jesus knows the heart. He knows how deeply anticipation affects our thinking and our behavior. That if we are to expect something, if we're to anticipate something, if we're looking towards something, it changes us. It alters us. Several of you are preparing to go to Israel in less than three weeks now. Yeah. And those of you who aren't, don't worry, you'll get there. One way or another, you're going to get there. How much anticipatory preparation, you Israel travelers, how much has already gone into that journey? I'm getting emails, I'm getting phone calls. What kind of jacket should I have for the trip? What kind of shoes were those you mentioned that you're going to wear? Do you have those zip-off pants that come turn into shorts? And can I wear those? And some people have said yes, and others have said, please no. <laughs> what I'm getting at is this. Belief in the any-moment return of Jesus is not just a longing, it's a lifestyle. And it is the lifestyle that Paul lived. It is the lifestyle Jesus invites you to live with the sense of His imminent return. And John said in 1 John 3, verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. To fix your hope on the coming of Jesus, on being with Him, is a purifying thing. It is a life-altering thing. It's not just something you long for. Again, it is a lifestyle. In the passage before us, Jesus gives us three parables. And these three parables are designed to affect our thinking, to change our behavior, and to impact our attitudes about His coming. Now, obviously, the larger overall message is readiness as He begins. Be dressed in readiness. Be ready. Be prepared. Don't be caught off guard. But it's the specifics in this passage that get really interesting. Three parables. Number one, the parable of the newlywed master. The newlywed master, verse 35. Be dressed in readiness, keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may be immediate, so they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Not a wedding feast, it's the wedding feast. It's not just any wedding feast, it's the master's wedding feast. And he's saying to these servants, be ready when the master returns. Be ready as the master comes back. It's a joyful time, even for the servants of Downton Abbey. They're ready for the master to return. The servants who are readily awaiting... And verse 37 says, Blessed are those slaves whom the Master will find on the alert when He comes. Truly I say to you, He will gird Himself to serve. He will have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. He's going to turn the tables on them. You've been serving. Let me serve you. And whether He comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so blessed are those slaves. The second watch would be 9 p.m. to midnight. The third watch would be midnight to 3 a.m. So the point of that is that no matter how late the wedding feast goes, no matter how long the master is in coming, the servants are to be dressed in readiness 
lamps burning bright, looking to receive the Master when He returns and something amazing happens, He serves them. I've shared this verse before, just pulling this verse out of the context of the passage and sharing it. It's amazing to me, the Master serves the servants. The Master girds Himself to serve. The Master has them recline around the table and He comes up and He serves them. What an amazing, overwhelming thought. Must have been so for the apostles there on that Thursday night as Jesus girded Himself with a towel and began to wash their feet and serve them. And you remember Peter's response to that? No! Not you won't serve me, Lord. And he says, well, then you don't have any part of me. And, and then Peter says, well, then give me a bath. And Jesus says, uh-uh. <laughs> you know, it's my translation. Granted. Jesus said in John twelve twenty six, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. There is honor in service, great honor, where the service is the service of Jesus Christ. And we see this exemplified over in Revelation 14. Revelation chapter 14, verse 1 says, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with Him 144,000, having His name and the name of His Father written on their foreheads. And verse 4 of Revelation 14 says, These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. The 144,000. And you might say, well, wait a minute, aren't the 144,000 supposed to be Jews? Exactly. 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams, as we've said before. Jewish evangelists. Revelation 7 tells the story how they are sealed in the tribulation period. How they are sent out throughout the world. And as I've shared many times, we have 70,000, roughly 70,000 missionaries in the world today. 144,000 Jewish missionaries at that time sent out by the Lord to serve the purposes of the kingdom, to serve Jesus. But in Revelation 14, John sees them. Here they are. They're on Mount Zion. They're with the Lamb. They have made it. They are safe. And wherever He goes, they go. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Jesus said that. He who serves Me, where I go, you're going to go. Everywhere I am, that's where you're going to be. Now listen. If we will allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, I think the servants in the first parable speaks of Israel. I think we're looking at Israel here. Faithful Israel. This parallel teaching uh, is in Matthew 25, verses 1-13. through The parable of the wise and foolish virgins. Some had oil for their lamps. Others did not. Some had their lamps lit and were ready when the Master came. Others were not. Look at the parable. Who in the parable, easy question for you, is the Master? Jesus Christ, absolutely. To whom is the Master who comes back from His wedding, to whom is the Master wed? The bride. Who's the bride? The church. The church are not the servants in the first parable. The church is the bride. The church is kind of unmentioned in the first parable here because the Master comes back from His wedding feast, but the church is... The bride, not the servants. 
After teaching on marriage, the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 5.31, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. A whole section there, passage on marriage, great marriage teaching, great marital understanding, how husbands are to love their wives and wives to respect their husbands, and and how that all plays out in, in the way we interact. And it's really a good place to go to understand marriage. And yet Paul ends the whole passage by saying, This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ in the church. That Christ is the husband. That the church is the bride. And we see this played out in many places in the New Testament. Revelation 19, verse 7, perhaps the most obvious and beautiful, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So this first parable that Jesus says about being dressed in readiness is directed to faithful Israel waiting expectantly for the coming of Jesus at the end of the tribulation. When Jesus the Master comes directly from His wedding feast, He ushers these servants into the kingdom, they recline, and the Lord waits upon them, ruling and reigning as King of the earth. Verse 39 second parable. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Parable number two, the unexpected thief. So you've got the newlywed master, master being Jesus, the bride unmentioned being the church, and then the servants being faithful Israel. And now we get another parable of readiness, the unexpected thief. Suddenly, Jesus switches roles on us. He is no longer the master. He's the thief. He's the one who breaks in. He's the one who grabs hold. He's the one who pulls out. The current master of the house in this second parable, this head of the house, would be the one we talked about last week, the Lord of the house, Beelzebul, who doesn't know when Jesus is coming. And when Jesus does come, Jesus is going to break in and steal. Steal what? Not what? Who? The implication here, I believe, is the rapture of the church, which may come at any time. Verse 40, you too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. It's not not man's expectation that, that brings the coming of Jesus. He will surprise all of us as ready as we are. We still are going to be caught off guard when we're caught up. We're still going to be just... It's now! This is it! Spencer, get your... Oh, Spencer! (laughs) I'm kidding. We're going to be surprised. We don't know the day or the hour. We can't know the day or the hour. We can know the season. We certainly can read the signs of the times. But Jesus says it's going to be a break-in. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 says, we who are alive and remain will be caught up, harpazod, raptus, where the word rapture comes from, caught up together with them, that is with those who died in Christ, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. And the difference, the distinction you Bible students know between the rapture of the church and His second coming is very clear. In the rapture of the church, we meet Him in the air. In the second coming, He sets foot on planet earth. 
And you can make the whole list of differences between the description of His second coming, His glorious return to rule and reign, and the calling up or the catching up of His people to meet Him in the clouds. Two very different events that one kind of begins the process of the other. Now we have another parallel parable, and I'd like you to turn there right now to Matthew 24. Verse 42. Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day the Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think. But in the verses right before that, listen to what Jesus said. Go back to verse 40. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken. One will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Now perhaps you've heard those verses before and you've heard them applied a little differently. You've heard them read and you said, yeah, but those who are taken may be those who are taken away into judgment and not the raptured church. And for those of you who would use this Matthew 24 verse 40 for the raptured church, you're you're misinterpreting the passage. And people say that because they go back to verse 39. that talks about the flood. It says, They did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. And Jesus says, Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. And people go, Oh, see... The flood took away the unrighteous. The flood took away in judgment all of those who were not ready. So the flood took and now the Son of Man, one will be taken. So obviously it's taken into judgment. Not if you know Greek. And if you understand it in the language and how the language was written. Because there is some very specific word usage here by Jesus. In verse 39, where he talks about the, the people who were taken away by the flood, the word took is airo in the Greek. Airo. A-I-R-O, if you just want to jot it down. And it means literally to cause to cease. The flood came and it caused them to cease. The word used in the very next verse by Jesus is not airo caused them to cease. It's paralambano. Paralambano means to bring with, to catch hold of, to receive something. One will be received, the other will be left. One will be caught hold of, the other will be left. One will be brought with. Let me give you just a handful of verses quickly that use the word paralambano so you understand the difference. Matthew one twenty, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Paralambano. Matthew 17, verse 1. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. Jesus took them, and they saw him in glory. He paralambanoed them. He brought them with him. Or how about the most telling verse, I think, is in John chapter 14. Verse 3, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and paralambano you to myself. I will receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. These verses are beautiful. 
Because it reminds us that Jesus takes us to a place prepared. Just as His friends were taken up to see Him glorified in the transfiguration. Just as the bride Mary was taken by the husband, Joseph. So we will be taken. Back to Luke. The first parable, the parable of faithful Israel, dressed in readiness at the second coming of Jesus. The second parable, the parable of the raptured church. As the thief comes and steals away, catches away, surprising everybody, catches away the church, his bride. Now the third and final parable begins with a question. Peter's listening. Peter's trying to work it out. He's thinking it through. And Peter blurts out. I really think every time it says Peter said, we just ought to insert blurts out. (laughs) Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone as well? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants and give them their rations at the proper time? Well, that's not an answer. Jesus answers the question with another parable. He doesn't give the direct answer. Peter just wants a yes or no. Is it us or is it somebody else? What's the deal? And Jesus said, let me tell you another parable, Peter. It's like, oh man. i got to think. Remember that in all three parables, don't forget this, Jesus is coming. Again, in the first parable, as the newlywed master in which the servants are faithful, Israel. In the second parable, as the unexpected thief in which the thing stolen is the faithful church. And here in parable number three, he is the homecoming master. The homecoming master. But think about Peter's question in verse 41. Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone as well? And Jesus' answer... It lies in a shift that takes place from talking about just servants in the first parable now to stewards in the second or in the third parable. Stewards, not servants. And it is a different word in the Greek. The word servant in the Greek, doulos. Just a, a basic word for those who serve, a slave, an attendant, a servant, doulos. The Greek word for steward here is oikonomos. And oikonomos is very literally a manager. An administrator. Someone who has been given authority and responsibility. That's who he's talking about. You've got to really get this in this third parable because it speaks loud and clear to a huge question across 2,000 years of Christianity. He's talking about a steward. He's talking about a manager. He very pointedly directs his answer to those who bear the responsibility and the authority of their master, the stewards. Verse 43. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Now he uses the word doulos there again, but he's referring to the sensible steward. This oikonomos. Blessed is that slave when his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. And so the first thing we see in this parable is the faithful steward. The one who has been entrusted with much and he does much with that. And he has integrity. This is a man who is blessed in the coming. Blessed in the return of his master. This is the man whose sleeves are rolled up. He's ready. He's awaiting the homecoming of his master by serving the house. He has the house in order. Nothing is out of alignment. These are found in the midst of their service when He comes. 
This is not a man on a mountaintop looking for Jesus to come. This is a man who is serving, who is caring, who is about ministry as Jesus comes. And and he's caught off guard, not because he's not ready, but because he's so busy doing the work. And I'll tell you what, we've talked about, we've seen that license plate or that, that bumper sticker that says, Jesus is coming, look busy. And the first few times I saw that, I laughed. And now when I see it, it really bothers me because we should be busy about the work of the kingdom. So focused on the kingdom that when He comes, we're, we're surprised because, oh, oh, now it's time. You know? And that's this faithful steward. And this is how you live blessed in readiness. If you live in readiness, it is a blessing unto itself. Daniel chapter 12, verse 3 says, Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. Those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. I can think of nothing more exciting than seeing someone saved. Than leading someone to know Jesus. That, that, there's nothing like it. If I could do that every day and never have Christmas again, I would be fine with that. Because that's where the joy is. That's where the wonder of God's work in this world is. To see people getting saved. To be among those who our sleeves are rolled up because we're sharing the Gospel. Romans 8.23, it's those who today have the first fruits of the Spirit. And as Paul said, we groan within ourselves waiting eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. We can't wait. Titus 2.13 It's those who are looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. That's how you live dressed in readiness. Is you are engaged in the process. You're doing the ministry. You're serving the Lord in whatever capacity He's called you to. But understand this. That living with that kind of understanding, with that kind of anticipation, also involves a divine expectation. And Jesus gets very serious. And in verse 45, He says, If that slave says in his heart, My master will be a long time in coming, and begins to beat the slaves, men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day that he does not expect, an hour when he does not know, and will cut him in pieces, and note this, assign him a place with the unbelievers. What does that mean? It means God has zero tolerance for those who do damage to His people. Zero tolerance. It is not okay. Why would anybody do such a thing? Beat the fellow slaves and and eat and drink and get drunk. Why would someone live that way, especially someone who is a steward, who has been entrusted with responsibility, with the authority of his master? Why would you do that? One simple thing, the assumption of delay. It's not coming back. Not in my lifetime anyway. He may come back way down the line. Certainly not coming back this week. And the moment you begin to set aside the coming of Christ, it opens the door to this kind of behavior. 2 Peter 3, verse 3, In the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. And we always assign that to non-believers. We always say, oh, the mockers with their mocking, those are like, you know, those are those atheists and those people outside of the church. No, I, I hear it in the church. I hear Christians who mock the rapture. I hear Christians who make fun of the coming of Jesus. Maybe not, not so much, but it's tongue-in-cheek. It's the bumper sticker. You know, he's not really coming. 
Jesus teaches that kind of thinking, the kind of thinking that denies the soon return of the Master produces two things, cruelty and carnality. Cruelty in the harsh treatment of other servants. It's where those in responsibility in a church setting, in leadership in a church setting, will begin to take advantage of the church fellowship. And I believe the judgment for that is very, very severe. Carnality. Eating, drinking, getting drunk. These are things the flesh hungers after. These are things that pleasure the flesh. That bring a certain degree of enjoyment to us now because we're living for now instead of for then. And Romans 14.16 says the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Have you noticed how much the Lord in all of our Bible teachings over the years keeps trying to draw us out of the flesh and into the Spirit? I see this again and again and again. I hear it loud and clear, Lord. Rick, get out of your flesh. Rick, stop focusing on the flesh. Rick, stop enjoying so much flesh stuff and get into the Spirit. That's where the joy is. That's where the life is. That's where we're called. But the steward who is cruel and carnal, who lives for now instead of for eternity, this steward, note this, will be assigned a place with the unbelievers. Where do the unbelievers go? Sheol, Hades, hell. There's only one place where the unbeliever is assigned. Matthew 24, verse 50. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect and at an hour which he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and he is talking very definitely about hell. Isaiah 33, 14. Sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can live with the consuming fire? Who among us can live with continual burning? That from the prophet Isaiah. And here in Luke, we see the master's stewards assigned a place, the faithless stewards, those stewards who would beat and be cruel, those stewards who would eat and be carnal, assigned a place with the unbeliever, and we know where that is. And we don't have the option, brothers and sisters, of scriptural selectivity. If we are followers of Jesus, we must reconcile the whole counsel of the Word of God. It's all God. It's not just one verse here or one verse there. It's the sum total of His Word that must be reconciled in our doctrine, in our understanding, in our teaching of His Word. Now that being said, if you were troubled by what I said three weeks ago about the possibility of losing salvation. So I went back and listened to it to make sure I... Because I don't... I shared Wednesday night. I rarely know even what I'm saying up here. I, I don't have any idea. <laughs> so I went back and listened. What, what exactly did I say? Did I say you could lose your salvation? And I did. And I went, oh, I said that. But immediately I qualified it. So let, let me give you the qualifier. I said you can't actually lose your salvation, but you can leave your salvation. Which sounds like a (laughs) cop-out. Can you lose your salvation? Let's just get this straight. Let's be real clear about this. I believe the answer depends on your perspective. Jesus said in John 10.27, My sheep hear my voice. 
and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's pretty clear, right? John 10.29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So they can't pull me out of Jesus' hand, and they can't pull me out of the Father's hand, because why? The Father doesn't drop the ball. Once the Father catches the pass, He does not lose it. Once the Father has you in His hand, He holds on. He does not drop you. We are safe in His hands. However, God does not force salvation on anyone. No one's going to be dragged into the kingdom. I don't want to go. Shut up, I'm saving you. You It's not how it works. He's not going to force anybody under duress to be in His presence. And 1 Timothy 4 verse 1 says, the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, listen, some will fall away from the faith. To fall away from the faith means you have to be in the faith. Doesn't it? Hebrews chapter 6 verse 4. This will really rattle you. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. Apostasia in the Greek where we get our word apostasy. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. Now here's the problem. Far too many Christians have been sailing along happy and slappy and everything's good with Jesus in their lives and then they have some major crash, some major fall, some major sin in their life and someone points out Hebrews chapter 6 and they figure, I'm done. I'm lost. Far too many Christians worry about that. Uh, about, but I did this horrible thing and, and I've repented, but I don't know my, how can I, I can't be renewed again to repentance. I, I can't get there. I, I don't know what this means. We need to make a clear distinction here. There is a, a, a vast chasm of difference between falling, stumbling into sin, and falling away, which is apostasy. Big difference. And the reality is, if you have stumbled into sin and you have come to that place of repentance or heartbrokenness over it, it's <laughs> not a problem. The sin's never good. But if you are able to repent, listen again to what the Hebrew writer says, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. This is a person who will not repent, who can't repent. They're too far gone. Point of no return. So the reality is, if you feel pain in your heart, anguish over sin committed. If, in fact, no, I'll, I'll, let me save that. I'll come back to it. It's a great quote, but not yet. Difference between falling and falling away. Falling away, listen, falling away is a chosen departure from Jesus. To apostatize is to say, I don't want to be of this group. I don't want to belong to you. I reject you. I refuse you. Proverbs 24 verse 16 says, For a righteous man falls seven times and rises again. In other words, over and over. Seven times being that number of completion. A righteous man falls down a lot, but gets up every time. He falls down a lot, but he rises again. But the wicked stumble in calamity. 
The difference between the righteous man and the wicked is not who has a better record. It's who gets up. It's who repents. It's who really has, listen, a relationship with the Lord. That's the issue. The difference we see between a Judas and a Peter. A Judas and a Peter. Peter fell and was restored. Judas fell away. And renewal and repentance were impossible for him because he would not repent. Have you heard about this? It's called lithopedion. Lithopedion. It literally means stone baby. I don't know if you saw this in the news, any of you, but in Brazil, an 84-year-old woman was to discovered, discovered to have the calcified remains of a baby in her body that she had been pregnant with 44 years before. Just happened. This has happened rarely, but in other times where, where uh, an infant begins to grow and then dies and then calcifies within the body and the body can't for whatever reason kick it out and so it calcifies it to protect the body and to protect this this being and this woman in Brazil was discovered to have been pregnant when she was 40 years old and she was experiencing a lot of pain went to a healer there in Brazil the healer gave her something to drink she drank it and the pain stopped and her stomach stopped growing so she figured she must have uh, had a miscarriage at some point well, fact is, the baby was still there. And it has been for 44 years. And they just discovered this. It's a fetus partially developed, but never actually born. And that's what we're talking about. Are there spiritual stone babies? Calcified Christians? 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, John says, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out, so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. What does that mean? Some say, some say that, that, that if a person walks away from their faith, that they never really had faith in the first place, it, it never got from their head to their heart. Fair enough. In fact, I had a dear brother share that this last week as we talked about this. Never got from the head to the heart. And I think that's the key. And that's why I say this whole issue of eternal salvation, of eternal security, is a matter of perspective. From a human perspective, I cannot read hearts. We've been saying this. I can't look around this fellowship and say every single person here is saved because I don't know what your heart is. I like to assume that we come together, we worship, we follow Jesus together, and everybody here is saved because we're here. Why would you be here if you weren't? And yet John says, there were a number who were with us, but went out from us, and they never really were with us to begin with. But they were there. They went to church. They showed up. They were in attendance. They had all the outward evidence that they were a brother or a sister in Christ. And outwardly it looked like, from a human perspective, oh yeah, oh yeah, they're saved. Here's the answer because we see this. You see a brother, you see a sister in Christ or so you think, fall away and you go, wait a minute, but but you were there. I worshipped with you. We studied the Bible together. We talked about these things. And now you're gone. How does that work? So... So you must never have been saved in the first place. 
We have a human limited perspective. From man's view, another person can sure look redeemed and not be. From the divine perspective, only God can read a heart. From God's view, and I love this, redemption is irreversible. You can't become unredeemed. Think about that. If you redeem something, if you redeem a coupon, you don't get it unredeemed. Once it's done, it's done. So when it comes to the issue of salvation, once a person is redeemed, yes, you are redeemed, and that's it. You are redeemed forever, eternally, eternal security. But where that happens is not always the place that we see it. It's not always the place that we know it. And so we can only make an assumption with one another, with our brothers and sisters, an an assumption of love and acceptance and and that we're Christians together and we're walking together in the Lord. I assume that about every one of you. There are people who walk into the barn. I don't know they're not a Christian. They sing the songs, they take the communion. I don't know. This is why we continue to give that invitation, that opportunity for people to be saved, because I don't know literally where every single heart is. You know. And Jesus knows. And I believe the real issue, it, it keeps coming back to this. I, I'm stunned. I, I don't know if God's trying to get through my thick skull or someone else out here. But over and over and over, as we've been studying in Luke, God keeps coming back to the heart and to relationship. Again and again. First Samuel 16.7 God sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. All this debate, literally for 2,000 years, over can a person lose their salvation, or you know the once saved, always saved, versus those who think you can lose your salvation at any time, it's raged back and forth in the church. Why do we debate it? And this, this is my question to those of you who are born again, and you know you're born again. It's another thing I keep saying. I know, I know I'm born again. If you've been born again, you know. If you don't know, probably haven't been born again. That's not a judgment. It's just a reality. Well, but I want to be born again. Okay, be born again. (laughs) Do it. It's that simple. But here's the quote. F.B. Meyer said, the Hebrews chapter 6 passage has nothing to do with those who fear lest it condemns them. It's the Christian who loves the Lord, but he's messed up big time and comes to Hebrews 6 and says, I did, I tasted, I knew, I felt, I was part of, and then I did this, and now am I lost? Am I gone? Meyer says, the presence of that anxiety, like the cry which betrayed the real mother in the days of Solomon, establishes beyond a doubt that you are not one that has fallen away beyond the possibility of renewal to repentance. The fact that you feel it should tell you, the fact that you're sorrowful should tell you, you are in His hand. Otherwise you wouldn't care. Otherwise there would be no impact on you emotionally whatsoever. Yeah, I get smashed on Friday night and go to church on Sunday. What's the deal? I feel nothing. If you feel nothing, that's where I would say the conscience may very well be seared. Give Jesus your heart and you will never be lost. I love the song. We sing it every Christmas. uh, In the bleak midwinter. It's not even really that accurate a song. But what I love about it 
Because it talks about the snow in the bleak midwinter, and we're not even sure exactly that Jesus was born in the midwinter. It may have been, but who knows. But when it gets down to the last verse of the song, it, every time it touches me. What then can I give Him, empty as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would give a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would know my part. What then can I give Him? I must give my heart. Do you realize that that's really all God wants of you? He wants your heart. He wants to be entered in to that love relationship that is everlasting. You give Him your heart, you are saved. And you cannot lose that. Because you can't be unredeemed. But we still have one little problem this morning. Who is this steward? Because this steward... If he is faithless, based on his actions, based on what he does, this steward will be assigned a place with the unbelievers. And there's only one possible answer as to who this steward is. The faithless leaders of Israel. He's talking to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, those who have been entrusted with authority and responsibility and accountability over God's people, Israel, and they are not caring for the people. They're caring for themselves. They are beating the people mercilessly. They are cruel leaders. They are eating and drinking and getting drunk and feeding their flesh like crazy. They are not good stewards. The nation's leaders who at that time, in Jesus' day, were neither expecting the kingdom nor welcoming the Master who was in their midst. You might say, well, well, why, Rick, is that the only possible answer, those faithless leaders of Israel? Because of the severity of the punishment, which is assigning those unbelievers to a place, assigning them to a place of unbelievers, and the sureness of grace. The sureness of grace. Ephesians 2.8, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. When Jesus died and grace was offered, then you come into that relationship with Him. You are saved, and you may mess up. You may even be a poor steward from time to time. I have been. But I'm not saved because of my stewardship. I'm saved because of His grace. And I'll tell you what, that saves me from week to week to week. That saves me from teaching to teaching to teaching. To know that even in my failure as a pastor, that I'm saved by His grace. The faithless and thus cast out steward cannot be descriptive of born again people. But Jesus' teaching does, however, remain highly instructive for us because he warns against a heavenly security that would produce an earthly lethargy. Verse 47. That slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but a few. Here's the point. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, to him they will ask all the more. Listen, those of you saved by grace, for everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And you've been given grace. 
And I have been given eternal life. I have been given the greatest gift that could ever be given in all eternity. That's been handed to me. That is more than anyone could ever ask or imagine how much is then expected of me. We're not talking salvation now. We're talking response to the grace of God. How do you respond to that kind of love, that kind of grace, that kind of eternal security? Jesus calls on all of His people to be accountable. Servants, be dressed in readiness. Stewards, be found faithful. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1, Paul said, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. Men of integrity, women of faithfulness. That's the steward. Ironside wrote, when God commits any talent, ability, or knowledge of the truth to His servants, it is that they may use all for His glory. If you've been given a gift, an ability, an understanding, a talent, it's not for you. It's for His glory. It's for His kingdom. And Ironside said, to fail to act in accordance with the revealed will of God will cause us to suffer loss. It will. When our called... uh, when are called to give an account, when we are called to give an account of our stewardship at the judgment seat of Christ. Have I ever told you how terrifying teaching the Bible can be? When the scriptures themselves say, Let not many of you be teachers, for you will incur a stricter judgment. Don't think I haven't read that one a few times. And it does freak me out. And when things come up, like this whole issue of once saved, always saved, and, and losing your salvation, or, I, I took that seriously. When word came back to me, Rick, I'm not sure what you mean by that. I doubled down in study. i got to know. I need to understand this. Because I don't want to tell you something that is not biblical, that is not sound doctrine. And I guarantee you, across ten years, I've told you things that was not sound doctrine. I erased it all on the recordings, but for you, live. <laughs> I am so thankful for amazing grace. So thankful for grace. And I'm thankful for something else that the Lord showed me years ago, and some of you know this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says, We must all appear. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And that's not talking about salvation. Because you are saved by grace, therefore not by deeds, therefore the judgment seat of Christ is not a judgment to salvation. It is a judgment based on what you've done with it. You're saved. In fact, if you're at the judgment seat of Christ, if you're standing there, you're standing among the saved. When that time happens, the judgment seat, the word is bima in the Greek, the bima seat of Christ, it speaks of that like three or four tiered seat that the judges at the Olympic Games would sit upon, and at the end of the race, they would dole out the rewards for that race that was run. The winner would get the gold, and the second place the silver, you know, as we're seeing in the Olympics right now. USA. (laughs) The judgment seat. We're going to come before this judgment seat. And I believe this is absolutely a literal thing. But if you are standing there, it means that your judgment of salvation took place 2,000 years ago at the cross. That that judgment's over and done with. It's not the great throne judgment of Revelation 20. That's for all those who want their deeds to count for salvation. 
But the judgment seat of Christ is the judgment seat of grace. It's for those who have been saved by grace, who have just said, yes, Lord, I want Your grace. I don't want to be judged on my deeds. And God is fair. And even in that judgment, where there is grace, He is fair and just. Hebrews 11.6 says, a rewarder of those who seek Him. How does that work? Last passage. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll finish there. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13. Now he's kind of in the middle of some teaching here, but we're just going to pick it up right there. I encourage you to study this out more and read back a few verses and beyond. But verse 13, Paul writes, Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test. This is not a fire of judgment, it is a fire of purification or testing. It will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains... He'll receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. What does that mean? As through fire means that there may be some uncomfortably warm behinds at the judgment seat. (laughs) But everyone at that judgment will be saved. There is coming a day for all those born again that we will come before the Bema of Christ and you will say, what would you do? What would you do with your salvation? How did you spend your life? Show me your investments. Show me your time. Show me your energies. Show me where you put yourself. What were you engaged in? And we'll show it. And if it is stuff that we did that impacted eternity... In fact, he even uses the comparison to gold and silver and precious stones, things that don't burn up in the fire. You'll receive a reward. And if it's stuff that was about this life, this earth, and this experience, well, I invested massively in Wall Street. Wood. Well, I invested in in agriculture. Hay. Well, I invested in tall buildings and great architecture stubble. It'll burn. It does not last. It has no eternal significance whatsoever. So what is the goal of the silver and the precious stones? Human souls. Human lives. And so we are called to live our lives as stewards in such a way that we will be used by God to bring salvation to the lost. That's the critical bottom line. Well, I'm not an evangelist. Do you have a grandchild that doesn't know Jesus? Well, I don't want to, I don't really I'm not called to go door to door. I'm not that articulate. Do you have a brother who doesn't know the Lord? Do you have friends who have no idea of the story, the wonderful story that we've just been called to tell? Well, what if I tell and nobody listens? Doesn't matter. Your job is to tell. It's up to the Holy Spirit to convict. You tell. So what it comes down to for the unbeliever, will you put your faith in Jesus? Will you give Him your heart for eternal salvation? For the believer, salvation is not the issue. Stewardship is the issue. What kind of steward will you be? 
Now back to Paul. He said, in the future. In the future is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. He said, literally, I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. The phrase, in the future, it threw me for a loop. Always go back. If you're thrown for a loop by a phrase or a word or a passage in Scripture, go back and look. What does it say in the Greek? What does it say if you're in the Old Testament in the original Hebrew Scriptures? What's the original language? What was the word that was used there? And what Paul literally said was loipon in the Greek. Loipon. In the future is a bad translation of loipon. Loipon means henceforth. It means literally all that's left. Read that way, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. All that's left is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Paul approached his imminent death. He knew he was was on death row. He knew he was scheduled to die. We don't know how far off that was. Two, three days a week, we don't know. But he was about to die. He knew it. He knew the potential for Jesus to come and rapture him out before his death. Was, was, you know, with every day that went by, it was less likely. Still possible, but less likely. His death was right there before him. And as he faced that death, he said, Henceforth, it's crown of righteousness time. It's not out there in the distant future, it's now for Paul. I have done what I was called to do. I ran, I fought, I did it all. And henceforth, now... All that remains is to be picking up the crown of righteousness. That's how I want to be found when He comes. And Lord Jesus, that's our prayer. That we might be found faithful. Faithful stewards. We know the judgment You called out on those leaders of Israel when You came. They did not receive You. In fact, they became judges of themselves because they rejected You. And Lord, we don't speak these words in judgment of Israel today or in judgment of the Jewish people. We know You have a plan and we know that You have a great grace to still bestow a great love for Israel. But we recognize the example that in the days of Jesus, Lord, we know You had leaders and rulers and stewards who were not faithful. May we be found faithful, dear Jesus. And Lord, I pray... If there is anyone this morning who is not absolutely sure, anyone who has not given you their heart, that they might give you their heart today. If as we pray that's you and you want to give your heart to Jesus, you really want to turn it over and and walk in relationship with Him and be saved for all eternity, I invite you to pray these words with me. Lord, I am a sinner. And I need Your grace. And I believe that You came to this world and You died on the cross. I believe that in so doing, You took my place. And I believe You rose again. And so, Lord Jesus, I give You my heart. In Jesus' name.